So as we've been gathering together on Sundays throughout December, we've been talking about really the entirety of the Bible and the grand story of God's plan for all humanity. We see it all laid out very plainly in front of us. However, sometimes it's, it's hard to see in the sense that it maybe gets lost in all the nuances of different types of theology and zeroing in on particular things and making those the main point when in reality that's not really the main point. And it becomes very uh, fragmented in a sense that we don't properly follow or see that God has one story he's telling us in all of scripture. There is one big story. And as I said last week, the major turns and twists along the way are not leading us on different paths. It's just that these are the major key moments in the story. We know that Jesus is a key moment in the story, right? We can admit that. But do you know there are other key moments in the story? And as we follow those big key moments in the story that God is telling us, we'll notice something about those big key moments. That those big key moments are the covenants and the promises of redemption that God has made all throughout Scripture. Okay, so we've been using this image. And uh, this image is uh, a straight line and it shows creation at the beginning, and it shows the new creation at the end. Now we know that God made all things in the beginning, and then what is he gonna do? He's gonna make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That new creation is coming. Is it here yet? It'd be pretty sad if it was, and that's what it was, right? We'd be very disappointed if this was the new creation. <laughs> Luckily, it's not, okay? There is something much better coming. It's not here yet. So do we have hope? Do we have anticipation? And so even though those coming beforehand, before Jesus was here, did they say, come, long expected Jesus, the Messiah, come? Now they were thinking about his first coming. What do we have in mind as we anticipate the Savior's coming? The second coming. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, the first and second coming of Jesus kind of go like this, right? When the New Testament comes, we're able to separate out those realities. And we realize that when the coming of the Lord Jesus and the day of the Lord, uh, and this kind of terminology, really it's separated into two comings of the Messiah. One at his birth to accomplish redemption, and the second coming later on to consummate his kingdom and to bring all things to completion. You follow me so far? So this is God's one plan. He did have a plan for the first Adam, and don't you know he also has a plan for the last Adam, right? Everything fits so nicely and neat because it's God's story and because this is the truth of the matter. It's not because we were able to package this. We say, oh, here's how we'll sell it. We didn't need to do that. But instead, God is telling one story and it all makes sense because it's the reality of the situation, right? Now, there was the fall and then we have somewhat of a little blurry line here. We can't quite tell what's gonna happen, but God knows. But then we have redemption through the last Adam and we are awaiting the new creation. So we've also been using this triangle and this triangle shows us that God begins to reveal after the fall, he begins to reveal his plans, but they're very vague at first. And uh, we start to follow these storylines of particular people and we realize quickly that God is making covenants with these people. And so God is telling us a story and he's revealing to us what he's going to accomplish. So where does it come to the final end? Where do all things narrow and point? They all narrow and point to redemption in the last Adam. And we know who that is, right? Okay. Now we've been tracking this story by means of these covenant head figures. When God makes a covenant, there are representative heads of those covenants throughout scripture. And we've been tracking our story through those covenant heads. Adam and Noah, we saw first, and then Abraham. Moses and Israel, we saw last week. And now we're at David this week, which I told you was extremely fitting that we cover God's covenant with David at Christmas. And I hope, oh, I so hope that you see it. And maybe you already see it. Thank God that you do. Because it's only by his great revelation that you see it. Some people don't see it. They don't get it. They don't get that the whole point is Jesus. They see it as other things. We're talking about the covenant with David this morning. We've been tracing this and tracking it, 
And last week, we covered the genealogies quite a bit. If you weren't here and I said we covered genealogies, you, you probably are saying, oh, glad I missed out on that one, the genealogies. That sounds exciting. But in fact, I found it very exciting because we realize that God's actually telling us a story through the genealogies. They're not random and they're not simply historical record, but God is telling us a story. And that story is constantly pointing us to Jesus. So I hope you saw that last week. Now, I had you open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. Are you there? Look at what the first verse says. I do have it on the screen as well because I just want everyone to see it. You have your Bible on your lap, look at it. If you don't, look at the screen, okay? I want you to see it either way. Here is how our New Testament begins. Are you ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's where we stop. My plan for this morning is that I hope that you will see with me that this is one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. It's one of the most incredible passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Why? And of what relevance does it have to Christmas? Well, we get the relevance here because it's talking about a baby being born who had a genealogy. Who cares about the genealogies? God does. God is doing something in history and it's all coming into focus through Jesus Christ who needed to be born in the flesh, which means that we needed a Christmas day. Now, in terms, I have this on the screen, in terms of covenantal and theological significance, Jesus is the son of God. So there is a significance in this unfolding plan of God, right? But with covenantal and theological significance, Jesus is the son of, of several, okay? You'll notice that Jesus is mentioned as the son of, the son of, and you notice Joseph isn't mentioned right here, okay? Uh, it also doesn't necessarily say, we, in, in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's actually not how it starts, is it? Because it's telling us something. It's telling us something very specific. Now, Jesus is the son of Adam and Noah, right? Because Adam was the first man, so he's, we, we are all children of Adam. And then it narrowed down to Noah and his family, and in that regard, we are all also children of Noah, okay? These are our direct descendants, okay? Jesus, unlike us, well, most of us, we are not the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Some are. Many are not. He is also the son of Judah and specifically son of David, okay? Now, what do we see here? Adam and Noah, it's the first covenant we looked at. Then we saw Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that's the second and third. And then we see Judah and David, and there we have it, right? We've landed at the fourth covenant. So, the biblical genealogy immediately is starting to trace Jesus through the covenants that God has made with people because he is showing us where the Redeemer is to come from. And he's telling us that there's great significance, okay? Where is the Redeemer to come from? He's coming right here. Here he is. Okay. God reveals and establishes his plan over time using the covenants and promises of redemption as the means by which he will do this. God reveals and establishes his plan over time. You just have to remember, see, when we celebrate Jesus being born in a manger, I would have to argue with you based on personal experience that most people have no idea the depth of theological significance that Jesus was born, who is the son of Adam, son of David, son of Abraham. It's just Jesus in a manger. Why is that important? Why does the New Testament start this way? It's, it's very important. It's very significant. And if you can go on this journey with me over this, let's call it 30 minutes or so, if you can go on this journey with me, um, I, I just, I really think, it's this, this is from my heart, I really think that 
Christmas will be something very different to you. The celebration of the birth of Jesus will be something greater than maybe you ever conceived of it before. And so that, that's my hope. That's, that's what I want to accomplish this morning is that we see things like we've never seen them before. And if we see things the way we've never seen them before, that there will be greater joy, there will be greater thankfulness, right? So how are we going to do this? There is a narrative of the covenants leading to David, and I just want to trace that this morning, okay? Here's how we're going to do that. We have Moses... Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. If you look at your Bible, those are the books in order in our Bible, okay? By Moses, I mean the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, okay? We have Moses, and in the first five books of the Bible, what do we see happen? The covenants are established, okay? And then in Joshua, there's the conquest period. What happens in the conquest period is that all that was promised through the covenants, they now go and take that land by force, okay? So that's where you've heard of all these military conquests and in Canaan, that, that's where all that comes in. So in Genesis, it's all promised in, uh, or excuse me, in the, in the Pentateuch, it's all promised. And then when we get to Joshua, uh, that's when they actually go and take possession of the things promised, okay? You with me so far? Uh, that's Joshua. I'm calling that the conquest. And they all start with C, and I thought that was cute. Okay, so <laughs> Joshua 21, beginning in verse 43. Let me just read for you. Let me just hear it. Joshua 21:43. The Lord thus gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just like he swore he would to the fathers. Not one of all their enemies withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And that's where the Bible ends, see, because everything God ever promised came to pass. And what more is there? But that's not true. That's actually the beginning of the Bible. We've got a lot more. How could it be that everything God ever promised it ended, it, they got it, they, they obtained it. They got everything God ever said they would get, except it didn't last. Right? It didn't last. So then we have a season of chaos. That's what the, judge, that's what the book of Judges is, okay? You have conquest of the land, and they all go and settle, and I read you from Joshua, now they had rest everywhere, and all was good, all was perfect seemingly. That is, till people got involved, right? Because people are messed up at their core. They could not maintain the great gift of God, could they? They messed up. So we have a season of chaos in the judges. So when you read stories in the judges, it's going to be crazy stories because it's, a, it's, it's rebellion at its core and there are messy things happening. And then you get to the book of Ruth and you wonder what the book of Ruth is doing here because the book of Ruth happens during the period of the judges. And you see what God's actually doing in the book of Ruth. It's a very short book. If you go and read it. What God is doing is he's actually preserving the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that he can do what he promised. In the midst of chaos and rebellion, God still remains faithful he brings about the preservation of the line where the Messiah would come. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. Okay? Um, Ruth 4, 18 through 22. This was in the period of the judges. Listen to what it says. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Why is that genealogy there? Because God is remaining faithful to his promise to bring about the Messiah. So you have this, we're walking just through the Bible here. This is the story of God. That 
Here are the, here's the creation and the covenants with fallen humanity. And then here is the people taking possession of everything God promised, but it, it failed. It's not perfect. The people mess up. So you have chaos. But even in the midst of chaos and rebellion, God preserves the people so that he can deliver to them the Messiah that he promised all along. And where did that promise begin? Genesis 3.15. Right? It's one story. So where do we go from here? Uh, from here, uh, the story uh, takes a turn. But before we get to that, I would like to read for you just a, a passage out of the book of Judges, okay? We're going to get to that. Let me, let me read for you just quickly the situation. What was the situation in Israel? That's a question that we have to answer. During this period of chaos and rebellion, what was the situation? Look with me at Judges chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 6. This is a summary of the whole situation. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his own inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance, Imtinneth Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And then there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. So there was a generation that knew what God had done, delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians, right? We know that. That's the parting of the Red Sea, right? That's the feeding of the people with manna in the wilderness, getting water from a rock. We know that. The people who lived through it now, they knew this, they saw God's faithfulness, but here arises another generation that knows nothing of God's faithfulness. What do you think happens? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the, what we call Baals, Baals. They served the foreign gods. They abandoned the Lord, verse 12 says the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after these other gods to the people who were around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and they gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And when they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So that's where the judges came from. There was absolute chaos and rebellion. And out of mercy and grace, the Lord raises up judges to give them a little help and support. Did they deserve it? Did they deserve help and support knowing that they had abandoned the Lord completely? Did you deserve help and support when you abandoned the Lord well, they didn't, but I did, right? None of us deserves that. That's, you see, that's what grace and mercy are. God has mercy on us. He doesn't give us what we actually deserve. He has grace on us. He gives us what, what we could never earn or get by our own work. We need the grace and mercy of God, and this is consistent with God's character all throughout Scripture. There are some who make a division, don't they? And they say the God of the Old Testament is very unlike the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is very angry. The God of the New Testament is just love all the time. That's not true. The, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and he is always a God full of grace and mercy. Always. But now grace has come to us in a particular form, and that form that we celebrate was born in a manger right? That's how the grace of God has come to us. Okay, so that's the situation of the judges. I could say more on that, but I'm choosing not to in this moment. Okay, so uh, that, that's Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then what we see happening next in our Bibles is First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. What's happening here in the storyline? Well, in First Samuel, First and Second Kings, we see kingdom establishment because the people want a king now. They had judges, but they say, well, the other nations have a king. We want a king. Will you give us a king? We don't like judges. Give us a king. And God has something to say about that. 
1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent them Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. They forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashereth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we might serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, those are the judges, and they delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. And now, when you saw that Naash, king of the Amorites, came against you, this is what you said, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. See, this is the big mistake of the people, is that constantly what they want is what? What do the people want? What's the problem? In all of the Old Testament, what's the issue? You wonder that sometimes? What's the problem here? Well, number one, the problem is that the people are sinful. Number two, what do they want? They want rest. They want peace. They want prosperity. They want joy what they want. Is that what your soul longs for? I hope you realize that if that's what your soul longs for, that everything that your soul could ever crave is satisfied in Jesus Christ. It's not satisfied in other stuff, right? Don't get me started on Christmas, right? <laughs> you think that that gift under the tree is going to satisfy your every longing, your every desire, your every, your every, every hope that you ever had is wrapped and it's under the tree until you open it, and it's not what you asked for, right? I know the pain, okay? I feel it. But every disappointment we have along the way, it just, it shows us that everything we think we want in this world, it never satisfies. You've realized that, haven't you? Haven't you realized that there's nothing you can do or get that will satisfy you? Haven't you realized that? The people of Israel think that what they want is rest from their enemies. Just give us a land of rest and peace where we can just live in prosperity with our God, whichever one we want at the time. And it's not right. So now they want a king because they believe a king will fight their battles for them and give them the rest they always wanted. But God says, and you feel the heart of God here, right? You're asking for a king? I mean, I'm your king. Why are you asking for a king when I'm your king? Right? Put yourself in whatever position you're in. Mother, father, whatever it may be. Okay? A pastor, right? All we want is just a pastor who will actually preach. And I'm, I don't... Why are you asking for one when I'm standing right here? That feels weird right? All I want is a father, and you say that to your father. All I want is a mother, and you're saying that to your mother. Uh, why are you asking for one when I'm right here? But that's what they did to God. All we want is a king. Just give us a king. So I'm your king. So God deals with them anyway, and he says, well, if that's what you're asking for, well, I'll give you a king. So the people then go through this progression, okay? Let's go to that next one, Rob, if you would, please. Here's the progression. And this is coming to the covenant with David. So number one is that Israel rejects God as their king, right? We just read that. Number two, the people choose Saul as a king. Now Saul looked like a guy who could deliver them. Saul looked like a guy who was a good leader, a good military guy. He, see, he was tall, you know, strapping guy. He can, he, can, he can do the job. And so the people choose Saul. And First uh, Samuel 12, uh, I guess I'll read that. There's a couple of verses. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, behold, the Lord has set over you a king. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and don't rebel against me in the commandment of the Lord, if both you and your king who reigns over you will just follow the Lord, it will be well. If you and your king would just follow me, all will be okay. But if you don't and if you disobey, 
the voice of the Lord and you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So what do you think happens? What do you know happens? Do they listen to the every word of God and all remains well for Israel? Or do they rebel and so the hand of God is against them? No, the hand of God is against them. But God continues to do something else. Out of his mercy and grace, he doesn't abandon his plan. Right? Didn't God have a plan from Genesis 3.15? Well, he had it before the beginning of time. Yes. We see that plan in Genesis 3.15. God made a plan to accomplish redemption for humanity. Didn't he? Is he going to do it even though the people are crazy and rebellious? Even though they continue to reject him, is God still going to be faithful to his plan? The answer is yes. What kind of God is this? 1 Samuel 16.1, God now chooses a king. Their king fails. God does not have his hand on him because he's rejected the Lord. And so God now says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll choose the king this time. And that's where David comes into our story. 1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord said to Samuel, who is a prophet, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Where was Jesse from? Bethlehem. Where did, where's the house of David? Bethlehem. So when it was time for the registration and all those who belonged to the house of David, they had to go to their home city. And so where did the people who belonged to David go? Bethlehem. And where was the Messiah born? But in Bethlehem. It all makes sense, and it has a long history. 1 Samuel 16, 7 now. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not, here's how I'm choosing the king. I love this. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks upon outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I'm going to choose a king that has a heart after my own heart, and isn't that what's said of David? That he was a man after God's own heart. And so David becomes the perfect redeemer king. He accomplishes all that God ever says. And he is a prophet, a priest, a king. He defeats sin and death. He never sees corruption. Oh, wait. Wait, that didn't happen. Why? Why didn't that happen? Because he was a man. And he was only a man. And he was imperfect. And he could never accomplish the redemption of the people of God. We're starting to see now that we need someone who's more than a man to accomplish God's purposes. And wouldn't you know it, what we have is someone more than a man. So God then makes a covenant with David. And he makes a promise to him here. And he says, now I'm going to establish your throne. But I want you to understand something. I'm revealing something and I'm making a commitment. Are you ready? Here's what I'm revealing to you and here's the commitment that I'm making and all things are going to come clear one day, such as Matthew 1.1. Look at 2 Samuel 7. If you've uh, missed out on some of these and you're ready to turn to one, this is the one I'd suggest you go to. This is where God actually makes his covenant with David. So I'd like you to, if you can, look at this one with me. 2 Samuel 7, okay? And we're going to begin in verse 8. Listen to the promise God makes to David. Have you followed so far? This been okay? You follow me okay? That's a lot of information. I'm trying to do a large sweeping summary of the entire Bible here. It's a little challenging. Okay? God makes a covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore, thus says, thus you shall say to uh, my servant David. So here's the words of God. Ready? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince, that word means ruler or leader, over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And be disturbed no more, ever again. Ever again? Perfect peace, perfect rest. Yeah, well, yeah, it's coming. And violent men shall be afflicted 
shall afflict them no more as formerly. From that time I will appoint judges. Uh, I appointed judges over my people. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. This is very important. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For how long? Forever. What kind of king can reign forever? One that lives forever. Now, if a king dies, I guess his kingdom dies right along with him. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son, and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will never depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with the vision Nathan spoke to David. There it is, that's a lot of promises. Did you see them all? Uh, here's a summary. What is this covenant? Well, it has to do with land and people. Wouldn't you know it? It always has to do with land and people. In God's kingdom through covenant with the perfect redeemer king. There is a king coming who is the perfect redeemer and he will do these things for how long? How long will his kingdom last? Forever. And how long will he give the people rest? Forever. There'll never be another enemy to come against you. He will defeat all the enemies. He will last forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will rule forever perfectly. And he's going to come from you, David. And he has a son. Oh, Solomon? Maybe it's Solomon. We'll see how that goes. So here's, here it is, a summary of the covenant. God will give a place of perfect peace and rest to his people. Wonderful. And God will raise up one of David's offspring as an eternal king. God made a promise that he was going to do this. And by the way, that eternal king, look what he'll do. He will build a house for God. He will be the son of God. He will suffer for sin. And he will obtain God's faithful covenant love. Amazing. You realize we're reading this from the Old Testament. I know that it seems like we're just summarizing who Jesus is because we're on the other side of history. God made a promise. He made a promise and he simply is being faithful to his promises so that when you get to Matthew 1.1 and it says that offspring of David has just been born, our ears perk up, right? So these promises then are not fulfilled with David's son Solomon. If you know the story of Solomon, although he was wise and although God used him to write scripture, don't you know that Solomon abandoned the Lord at the end of his life? you know that he was wicked. So it, it wasn't him. Immediately after this, and I told you before that in First and Second Samuel, you have the establishment of the kingdom and God making his promises about this throne. But in First and Second Kings, what do you read about? How great all the kings are? How wonderful the kingdom of God is? How God has given perfect rule, reign, and rest to the people? Is that what you read about in First and Second Kings? Have you read it? No, it's, it's craziness. And they rebel against God. In fact, this is where you sing kingdom decline. God promised a kingdom, but when we read about the history of the kings, what do we notice? It's nothing but decline. So when is God going to establish this great kingdom? Maybe this king. No, I don't think so. Well, maybe this one. No, I don't think so. Well, maybe it was David. Let's just go back to David. Let's just put all our hope in David. I know he's been dead a while, but he said, I, will never, I won't let my Holy One see corruption. So maybe David is dead, but not dead. I don't know. It seems like he's dead. So I want to cover with you. I'm going to do this quickly, okay? It's Christmas Eve. I made this image some time ago. And I've just referenced back to it because it's so helpful. You know that our Old Testament, when you look at your Old Testament and its arrangement, it is not what the people, let's just say, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, they would not have known the arrangement of our Bible. You would have said the Old Testament and they would have said the what? That, that's not something they know, okay? These were written on scrolls 
and there were collections, okay? Now, they did have a collection, and they called it the Tanakh. You should know that, okay? I'm saying put that in your memory, okay? And the arrangement of the Tanakh is different than the arrangement of our Old Testament, okay? And it's divided into three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And they are the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. This is all going somewhere. Bear with me, okay? The Torah are the first five, are the first five books of the Bible, Moses. We know what Moses covers. Next, we have the Nevi'im, the former prophets and the latter prophets. And in the former prophets, look what's there. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We know what happens in Joshua, conquest. We know what happens with Judges, chaos. We know what happens in Samuel, that is kingdom establishment. We know what happens in Kings, kingdom decline. So what then of the latter prophets? What do the latter prophets have to say? Uh, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12. That was one book to them. All the 12 minor prophets was one book, Okay. And then you have the Ketuvim, that is the writings. And in the writings, you had, again, three sections. Why? Because the Jews like cute things, right? And there you have five Megliot, which means the five scrolls. And these five scrolls were read at five different festivals, okay? And they're a reflection upon the faithful love of God. And then you have others, such as Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, where you look at not only the decline and chaos of the kingdom, but the anticipation of a future kingdom that will last forever. Okay? So that's the whole Bible. What does the whole Bible have to do with this idea of covenants? It's because as soon as you move on from the Torah, what is the covenant that becomes in focus for the whole rest of the Bible? The covenant with David. It all has to do with the covenant of David. In David, this perfect redeemer king will come and establish his kingdom on earth. God is building his kingdom where he reigns and rules as king over his people in perfection, in paradise forever. And the people will never rebel against him because they are his and they all know the Lord. That's the kingdom of God. That's what's coming. But every kingdom needs what? A king. And we know where that king's coming from. He's coming from the line of David and he will be a king that lasts forever right? So that's, that's, that's the whole Bible on display. Now, Luke, uh, Luke records, Luke 24, 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still in the way, uh, while I was still with you, that everything written about me in what? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. He said, don't you know that the entire Tanakh speaks of me, Right? Go, go to the next one. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't you see that the entire, what we call Old Testament, is talking about me and everything written and promised of God must be fulfilled. I told you it must be fulfilled. It's impossible that it would not be fulfilled. God is fulfilling all of his promises, and he's doing it through Jesus Christ who he promised a long time ago. Now, what do the latter prophets speak of? Well, they talk about judgment a lot, right? When we were in the book of Isaiah together for like 10 years, I don't know how long we were in the book of Isaiah, but we were there for a long time. Okay, so, but what did we hear so much about? We heard a lot about judgment. They had the Assyrians that came against them. They had the Babylonians that came against them. They went into exile, but God kept what for himself? A remnant. Why? Because he had to fulfill his promises. Not because the people were faithful, but because God is faithful. That's why. God is faithful. We are not. He is the one doing all these things. He is the one seeing it through. And if he's the one that's faithful, we are the recipients of grace and mercy, so he gets all the praise, not us. Right? Maybe you didn't get that, I don't know. Oh, thank you, that's right. So you have passages in the midst of judgment that speak to these realities. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which Danny read for us earlier. Jeremiah 33, 15. 
In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He's coming. I know things are hard for you right now, judgment from all these armies that are destroying you, but I'm telling you, there's one coming, a king coming, and he's gonna execute true justice on all the true enemies of God. Don't you worry about it. God will fulfill all of his promises and this is not only righteousness and glory for some, but judgment and wrath for others. He's gonna do it all. Ezekiel 37, 25, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. David's long dead. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the one who is coming from David, Jesus Christ. He will be their prince, their leader forever, their ruler forever, and they will dwell in a land. What land? Just a piece of geography on the earth or is it talking about something greater a land of perfection a land of paradise where there is never any threat again and there's only peace and fellowship with God for eternity that's the kind of rest that Jesus Christ gives perfection he doesn't fail the Bible is riddled with failed kings failed people Jesus never failed and he never will. He is perfect. We needed him. We needed him to be born on a manger one day. And we needed him to never die. We need him to last forever. And we need him to come back. Amos 9.11. In that day I will rise up the booth of David that has fallen. That has fallen. Yep. And repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. But we know it's not just like that. It's actually going to be something better, right? Are we going back to Eden just as it was or are we going to something better than Eden? Better than Eden because the fall will never happen again, right? That's right. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look at me on, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and bitterly weep over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay, so this is the coming of David. Now I had this whole next section prepared, which was really going to be my focus for this morning. <laughs> that was all kind of introductory. <clears throat> as my Christmas gift to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize just a little bit, okay? Uh, but it's incredibly good. Uh, go to that next one if you would, please, Rob. Thank you. Okay. So the Davidic covenant and the Tanakh, I just, I want you to see, go to that next one, please. I just want you to see that this is the whole Bible on display. I don't, don't miss this. I know I've given you a lot of information, but I promise you that information is good, not bad. Being more informed about what God has actually said actually leads you into greater joy than just this random emotional uh, idea that I could give to you. I could give you emotions, but if it's not informed, I don't know what I'm giving you. I'm giving you the word of God, which has given you a greater joy than you could ever have. The word, God himself is going to give you joy when you see what he has actually said and what he's actually done. This is where our encouragement, our joy, and our hope comes from. And when you see all that God has done, you, your heart will burst when you see it. So this is a summary of the entire Bible. We have the Torah, we have the creation, and we have all the covenants, and we have the former prophets. They talk about the Davidic covenant. And then the latter prophets just talk about judgment because all the people failed God. And then you have Emet, which is uh, wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, and you have God's truth and wisdom. And then you have the five scrolls, which talk about God's love, his faithfulness, and preservation of his people. And then you have all the others, okay? They talk about kingdom restoration. I've talked about this. The Psalms. You should know, okay, just quick, go to the next one, real quick. The Psalms, listen, are in I've, I've shared this with, some of you know this because I've shared it with you before. Others of you, this is gonna be something new. A light's gonna come on. The Psalms are intentionally arranged. It's called the Psalter. The Psalms are intentionally arranged to portray the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom in the midst of God's covenant faithfulness. It's not by accident. The Psalms are not arranged in a haphazard fashion 
randomly. Psalm 1, it's random. What, next, what do you got next? Randomly, Psalm 2. Randomly, Psalm 3. It's not random. The Psalms are arranged intentionally to show and to communicate the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom. And you see it throughout all five books of the Psalms. Okay, so you have confrontation with the enemy and every time you read in Psalms 1 through 41, you're going to notice that there's an enemy mentioned. Okay? Next, in Psalms 42 through 72, there's going to be communication to the enemies of God and the people of God. In Psalms 93, uh, 73 through 89, you're going to see that the people of God are devastated by defeat and that the king is going to fail. And, that the, and don't, don't you know all those complaint Psalms of David? Why, O oh Lord, does the enemy triumph over me? Why does he see success when I'm after your own heart? Where are you? Because the enemy's winning. I thought I was your anointed king. And he should question that because if he is God's anointed king, why is he failing? By the way, right after God makes a covenant with David, I didn't mention this, right after God makes that covenant with David, you know what happens just a couple chapters later? The whole situation with Bathsheba. That's interesting, huh? But did God remain faithful? You better believe he did. Why? Because he made a covenant. He made a promise. And he's seeing that through, despite David's sin. God is a good God. And then, in the next Psalms, uh, Psalm 89 is very significant. I was going to spend some good time there. Maturation through defeat. That, that, that they, they realize that they're defeated but they start to grow from their defeat and they start to realize that although I've failed and although our kings failed, God is the great king to be praised. God is the king above all kings. And they start to realize that God is their king. Isn't, isn't that the problem in Judges? That they didn't see God as their king? Remember that? And so then they start to realize that and then they start to realize that the kingdom of God is coming and it's gonna be greater than we ever thought so God is worthy to be praised and so all the rest of the Psalms are praise Psalms for God and his great establishment of his coming kingdom. So that's what the Psalms do and they're intentional. They're meant to lead us down this path to see the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom and how it wasn't good enough. So we need another kingdom to come and thank God that he's going to provide another kingdom and another king. God be praised for what he's doing. That's what the Psalms are all about. That's pretty good. So let's just talk about fulfillment as we look at our last just few moments here. Now, I do want you to turn to Psalm 110. If you can recall, some time ago, I read Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7, okay? When we started our service together. And it's because I knew that we were going here. So if you would, just look for, with me for a second at Psalm 110. It says, A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Who is he talking to? He's talking to David, but yet the psalm is actually talking to whoever Adonai is. I didn't explain that. It says the Lord, capital, right? All capital letters, that's Yahweh. And then it says Lord, lowercase. Okay, that's Adonai. So Yahweh says to Adonai, which is the title, Lord. So Yahweh says to the Lord, right? Whoever this Lord figure is, right? Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Is he talking to David or to this one who is called Lord? He's talking to the one called Lord, not David, right? And then he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110.1, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Let that sink in. Why? Because this is what everyone was anticipating, looking forward to when they said, come, long expected Jesus, although they didn't know his name. They knew there was an anointed king coming and they longed for him to come and to do all that God had promised, right? You are a priest forever, verse four, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's packed with some information there. Has both Old and New Testament significance. We don't have time for Melchizedek this morning, okay? 
Now, here's the thing. He is a priest for how long? Forever. And he is a king, yes? Do you know that kings are not priests? But this one is. Yeah. But there was the Levitical priesthood. Right? Who would come from Levi. Right? This is how God established it. Jesus, the Messiah, did not come from Levi, right? He came from a tribe of Judah. He was the son of David, but yet he was a priest and he was a king. And as we talked about last week, he was also a prophet. And as it continues to say, he is also a son. He is all of the above. He fulfills every office. He is son of God. He is prophet, priest, and king. And who else was like that that we already looked at? as Adam in the garden. He was son of God, prophet, priest, and king, although he failed miserably. And then we have someone who will come who will be perfect prophet, priest, king, son of God. He has the last Adam, okay? All this being established, okay? Now, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in Matthew 22, and listen to what he says. I'm bringing this to a close here, okay? Listen to what he says. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. Everybody knows that. And they said to them, how is it then that David says in the spirit and calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's not a title you would give to your son or that you would say to your son, right? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, so Jesus quotes Psalm 110.1 and says, what do you think about that Messiah who's to come? Whose son is he? And they said, well, the son of David. Right here, it's indicating that he had to be more than a man and God promised that he would be more than a man from the very beginning. Okay, we see the rise and fall. We see how men fail. And here, Jesus indicates, you say he's the son of David, but if he is simply the son of David, how does he call him Lord? Jesus was before David, right? And how is that? Because he is God in the flesh, right? So like Adam... The Messiah will be a son of God, he'll be a prophet, priest, and king, but unlike Adam, he will not fail, right? Next, God's rule will be established throughout the whole world and redeem humanity. They will have perfect fellowship with God in paradise forever. And isn't that the climax or the conclusion, I should say, to the whole story? That's what we needed this one to be. All right, so, okay, two more passages and we'll finish. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1 says, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is Jesus the Messiah, or Messiah Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Knowing that so much of our Old Testament and our Bible was pointing toward this Davidic figure, when you read this, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, It is bringing together everything that has been anticipated throughout the entire Old Testament. It's, this is it. This is the thing we've been waiting for. Can you believe it's finally come? Let me tell you where he came from. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now they're giving his human lineage. That's true. But don't you know he also has a divine one, right? Because Mary had never been with a man. So he was the flesh, of a man, right? But he was the son of David, that's true. But he was also the son of God, perfectly, right? In fact, he was God in the flesh. All right, I told you I'm gonna end with one, and so I'm gonna skip to it. Acts 13, 32. Evidently, I had a good uh, two hours of material here. So we'll have to abbreviate. All 
All right, this is where we're going to end. Acts, Acts uh, 13, beginning in verse 32. Now you should know that this is Paul preaching. And I want you to see what he does. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to see corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He died. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgive the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So here he is. Paul summarizes this whole thing perfectly for us. Okay, so if I could snap you out of it for a second, because I gave you so much information this morning, maybe you're overloaded. We can't lose sight of this reality. I, j I just want you to see so desperately that the birth of Jesus Christ is far more significant than many people give it credit for. It's just, it's not something that you think about one day a year. It's not something you celebrate one day a year. It's not a day that you use as a masquerade around and say, well, it's Jesus' birthday, therefore I'm going to buy a bunch of presents, right? And we're going to get things. This is not the point. God has done something wonderful. And he's been promising this for a long time. And he finally sent Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, in a manger, poor king, so many years ago, 2,000 years ago. And if God was faithful in bringing the Messiah the first time, you better believe, he's going to be faithful in bringing the Messiah the second time. He's going to come. But here's the thing. You know that longing for rest that the people always had? that longing for peace that people always had, that they just want no more enemies, they want to be completely satisfied in their entire being. You know, people want that. You want that. Do you know that that is offered to you in Jesus Christ? Everything you could ever desire, if you're so true longings, it's here. But it doesn't simply come to you by default. Right? It is a gift. That's true. It says specifically at the end of Paul's little discourse here, it's very short. His sermon was much shorter than mine. Verse 39, it says, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now he's talking to Jews. So the law of Moses had significance for them, right? They thought by the works of the law that they could have peace with God. Incorrect. You could never keep the law because you are imperfect at your core. You need something better. You need someone to die for your sins. You need someone to take your place. Because if you die for your sins, you're not coming out of that. You can't survive it. The wrath of God will come upon you and you will be pushed down forever under the mighty hand of the wrath of God. You will not get out of it. You can't overpower God. You can never suffer enough. And you might say, well, how is that? It's because you remain in your rebellion forever. So what are we to do? You believe on the one that Jesus sent. This is why it depends on what? Faith. You must believe that Jesus is who God said he is. He is that one that was promised so long ago. When mankind first rebelled against God, you know, death and sin came into the world, Jesus is the one that was promised way back then and he came to release us from all of that. And you have but to believe. Now Jesus had to suffer in the flesh because he was to take on the punishment that humanity deserved. Death, separation from God, that's true. He had to experience that. But do you know that when all the sin of all the world was laid upon him, that he was able to absorb it all and yet live 
You see, because he wasn't just a man. He was God. God alone can absorb the wrath of God and live. You know that. Man cannot absorb the wrath of God and live. God can absorb the wrath of God and live. That's why he died in the flesh, but death could not hold him. He rose from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are made his footstool. He is ruling and reigning today, and he is your king. Should you believe, should you have faith in him, he will give you that perfect rest and peace that you've been longing for. And should you not believe, he will execute justice because he is the king and he will be served. Every knee will bow down to him. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, packed with so much significance for us, I believe. And it's a worthy thing to celebrate. And so tomorrow morning when you wake up and it's Christmas Day, I just hope that you and your family are able to see what God has done for us in his marvelous gift of Jesus Christ.